This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, and it's a beautiful day in medical education because in our studio today, we're welcoming special guest, Dr. Mamdou Akar. Dr. Akar is a urology surgeon and deputy chair of the Board of Trustees of Berzait University in Palestine's West Bank. Dr. Akar was among the founders of the Mandela Institute for Political Prisoners and the Independent Commission for Human Rights. Dr. Akar was a member of the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid Peace Conference and in the Palestinian-Israeli bilateral talks between 1991 and 1993. He's also a member of several councils and committees focused on the health, education, and well-being of the Palestinian people. He's come to the Carver College of Medicine to talk to our students and faculty about the state of Palestinian health under Israeli occupation. Dr. Aker, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for this uh kind introduction. It's lovely to have you here. Also with me are my wonderful med student co-hosts. Say hi, MD, PhD student Shakura Sabri. Hello. I, I think I'm more of a hello person than are hi. You a hello? <laughs> That's fine. You can be. <laughs> um, we also have M1 Osama Abu Halawa. Hello. Uh, we have M4 Jordan Harbaugh-Williams. Hi. And M1 Joel Friesen. Thank you for coming today. I thought we should start off, Dr. Eker, with a summary of the state of um, Palestinian health today. Can you give us some idea and perhaps some statistics that illustrate the public health situation in Palestine? Thank you. Actually, the, the, the unfortunate thing about the health uh, situation in Palestine is that we have been under Israeli military occupation for now 50 sec 52 years. Uh, and the restrictions on movement is our main concern from the perspective of health because uh, as you know right to health needs one of the first priorities is access to health care and this is what we are denied in our situation because uh, what happened is that the West Bank where we live is fragmented into areas A, B, C, A, with different control by the between the divided between the Israeli Authority and the Palestinian Authority. In area A, for example, which comprises about 18 percent of the area of the West Bank, is under complete uh, control of the Palestinian Authority from security point of view and civilian uh, affairs. While Area B, which is more of the rural rural area about, around the Area C, and comprises almost 22%, and it is a joint control. The security affairs is for Israel, while the, only the civilian affairs for uh, Palestinian Authority. The majority of the what remains of the West Bank, 60-61%, called Area C, is totally under Israeli control. And the... The problem about this area, see, is that 
it is our main food basket uh, and uh, our natural resources, the water in particular. And it is totally inaccessible to Palestinians. Uh, this is one aspect of the situation. The other aspect is that within this area, ABC, within West Bank, Bank in general, the uh, network of roads, the main network, uh, the main network of roads, is under total Israeli control. They can stop uh, uh, movement of cars and uh, even uh, any sort of uh, transportation by checkpoints and the checkpoints either they are fixed checkpoints or uh, f what we call it flying check uh, checkpoints or surprise checkpoints so if you want to uh, in my case because i practice i live in ramallah in the middle of the west bank uh, if i want to go to my hospital in east jerusalem i i have to cross through a couple of checkpoints at least two if not three if I want to go, because I go once a week to uh, the Anglican hospital in Nablus, which is supposedly 45 minutes drive, it can take me an hour and a half, two hours, sometimes three hours. Uh, in one of the days when there were extreme tension, it took us four hours to, to get to the hospital driving from uh, where we live in uh, Ramallah. So this issue of the checkpoints is really affecting accessibility to healthcare by our patients. Uh, the other aspect is that because even before the Israeli occupation in 67, our main ho hospitals, secondary and mainly tertiary hospitals are located in East Jerusalem. These are the main referral hospitals. And now they are, all these hospitals are inaccessible to Palestinians. So for if we want to transfer a patient for, for example, for pediatric cardiac surgery or for a neurosurgery or for cancer, uh, it needs a coordination with the Israelis that the ambulance will take the patient from, for example, Nablus. Uh, the, the ambulance will, can be stopped by one or two or more checkpoints. This causes some delay, but the major the delay is at when you want to enter Jerusalem. There, the ambulance being West Bank license plated, it cannot cross. It has to stop and another uh, ambulance comes and they transfer the patient back to back, we call it back to back transfer. And again, this is in the open air and sometimes the delay at least 24, uh, uh, 25 minutes, and the whole delay with the other uh, uh, checkpoints might take up to half an hour or one hour sometimes. So this is really an ordeal that the these checkpoints. Not only this, but uh, another aspect of how we are controlled by the permit system. You have to have a permit whether you are a doctor or, or a pharmacist or uh, anybody who wants to go, whether to work in Jerusalem or to visit even, has to have a permit. And the permit is di differ differs. Uh, either a permit for a day, patients, for example, when we transfer them from Ramallah or Nablus to East Jerusalem, they need to be coordinated 
and have permit. And if they they need a companion with them, again, the companion has to have uh, a permit for one day, two days, one week. It depends on how, how long is the patient is expected to be in the hospital in East Jerusalem. Uh, sometimes, in my case, I can give you an example. At one stage, I used to have three or four different permits. When there is a lot of tension in the West Bank, with the, uh, during uprisings or uh, confrontations with the army or settlers, I need to have a permit to to use my car to leave Ramallah, out, to go outside. Another permit to go into Jerusalem. If there is a curfew in Nablus, I need uh, a permit to go to visit my family or to, be, to go to the uh, hospital in Nablus during the curfew. It needs a special curfew. Uh, if I uh, want to uh, travel through the airport, it needs another. For example, we we came uh, to visit uh, Iowa uh, last week. We were in Chicago, so we have to travel through the airport in uh, Tel Aviv to Chicago. Again, this is a, another a special permit, which is not granted to anybody. In, in my case, being a doctor, being uh, previously in the negotiation team, uh, as you rightly mentioned, uh, the bilateral negotiations in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. Again, uh, most of the time I'm granted this permit to, to, to go through the airport and so forth. There are areas which is totally inaccessible. It needs very special permit if somebody wants to go to Elat. Uh, this is a very special uh, Permit and so forth. This uh, this permit uh, permit system is very complicated, and it reminds you with the uh, permit system that used to be in South Africa during the apartheid regime. Yeah, so it's, it's, I mean, it sounds like many things coming together there to make it very difficult. Uh, you've got food security issues, you've got, um, you've got logistical issues, you've got bureaucratic issues. I mean, all of them coming together to make it very difficult for for accessibility, uh, accessibility to health care. So I want to I want to ask, um, do you if you, one, if you have uh, Israeli colleagues who are doctors um, who either work in the West Bank and see the health care crisis system in Palestine? Um, and if so, is that a way to sort of bridge a connection between the two peoples through the health of a population, whether they can see the, 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 the real effects of the military occupation through the health care? Yes, actually, thank you for asking this because there are more than one level about interaction with other colleagues, Israeli physicians. For example, uh, uh, during the first intifada, the uprising, uh, we have a, a major uprising against the occupation in 1978. Oh, sorry, 87. 87, in December 87. And during that uh, uh, uprising, and this is actually, I refer to it that I was reborn because when I was witnessing the uprising, the people from all generations, from all walks of life, getting to streets, facing the Israeli army, facing the tanks, children, women, elderly, youth, you name it. So I was overwhelmed and I felt that I cannot just 
stick to be just a technical physician doing urology surgery in the Mount of Olives in Makassid Hospital in uh, Jerusalem. So I was overwhelmed. So two actions I found myself involved in. First of all, it was a newly established Israeli-Palestinian Physicians for Human Rights. So I was uh, engaged with them, uh, trying to uh, uh, attend to uh, health issues related to human rights in the situation of the uprising and the harsh uh, uh, measures taken by the Israeli army. This is one thing which I, I was, it was a great experience to interact with the Israeli doctors who care about what's going on and they uh, from the, at least from the perspective of, of uh, human rights and the right to health in particular, they, uh, they were great uh, colleagues committed to medicine, to health, and to human rights. The other aspect of it, actually, when, uh, I'll come to that, because I was detained by the Israeli army at one stage, and I, I received a great help and support from the Israeli, these Israeli-Palestinian physicians for human rights. And they uh, wrote to many institutions all over the world and to Israeli government, and they wrote to congressmen, to senators, objecting uh, uh, my arrest. And actually, that helped a lot. But the other aspect, in one day, I was leaving the hospital in in East Jerusalem and going to visit our family in Nablus with my wife. And the scene of the uprising, people in, to, taking to, uh, to the streets in the refugee camps in so many villages we and uh, towns we passed through while driving from Jerusalem to Nablus. I felt and, uh, that this is overwhelming. And uh, when you listen to what the Israeli uh, media and the Israeli officials, especially the he was then the defense minister, uh, General Ishaq Rabin, and he then became the prime minister, uh, that these riots, he called these riots, these violent acts and these terrorist acts of the population, this is an uprising. So I found when I reached Nablus, after having lunch with the family there, I just went, I couldn't uh, sit. I went into a room and locked myself and started re uh, writing an open letter to Ishaq Rabin, telling him that in my capacity as a doctor, let me tell you the right diagnosis, what is happening. This is an uprising. This is a people revolting, asking for freedom, ending the occupation. Why you call it terrorism? Why you call it violence? Why you refer to it that it is incitement from outside uh, powers? This is coming from the heart, from the uh, harshness of your many treatment to our people. If you were occupied, what you would do when your people were facing the Nazis, do they stand silent? When the French were occupied during the Second World War, didn't they resist? We have to resist. And what do you expect us to do? The least to do is to throw stones on the soldiers and on the tanks. You expect us to throw roses and flowers at the heads of your soldiers? Of course not. 
Of course not. And it went on. So, uh, the, actually, the, the, I, after I finished the letter, I went to the, uh, the biggest uh, newspaper in Jerusalem in Arabic. I went to the chief editor and uh, I showed him the letter. I asked him to publish it. And then he started read, reading it and he took his pen and started to uh, edit some of the sentences. I said, no, no, Mr. Uh, uh, Abu Marwan, I'm not interested in publishing just a letter. Either it is published as it is coming from the heart or I'm not, please don't. He said, I cannot because they will close the newspaper. You know, there is the military and security uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, uh, when the uh, there is a term about uh, uh, freedom of the press. When the uh, censorship, the military censorship. Sorry, it, it slipped my mind. Uh, censorship. He said they will close the newspaper for a few days if we publish it. So I took the letter and was walking out of his office. And to my surprise, one of his aides, a journalist, he was listening to what was going on. He told me, look, uh, Dr. Acker, do, we, do you mind if we publish this letter, open letter to Ishaq Rabin in a, an Israeli newspaper in English? I said, of course, I don't mind. It's even better. It will di directly reach him. He said, okay, let me uh, take you to my office. And he called a journalist, a senior journalist in the Jerusalem Post, which was a major newspaper at that time in English. And he told him, here's, I have in my office, Dr. Akir, he just showed me a text for an open letter to Ishaq Rabin, the defense minister. Do you mind to be published in English? He said, of course, well, he's most welcome. This is very interesting, very important. He was very encouraging. So within two days, I translated it into English and submitted to my friend. And it was published. It was published almost in a full page, almost in a full page in the Jerusalem Post. And it was big news, it seems, you know, uh, somebody uh, daring to address courageously and uh, without any fear expressing what is going on during the Intifada. And... Uh, this actually brought me into the uh, spotlight. Journalists, Israeli journalists starting to uh, interview me, diplomats inviting me to meetings because at that time the uprising, it uh, got the attention of the, the whole world in, in 1987. So with my involvement getting more and more uh, in the activities of the Intifada and in, we used to have home meetings every weekend. Uh, few people, sometimes my wife will join me. We go to and being invited by the Peace Now movement, Israeli Peace Now movement, to come to home meetings where 40, 50 people are invited or in university or uh, in different places, try to express what is going on in the occupied West Bank. Some of them, they, they, we were told that they, this is the first time they talk to a Palestinian. And uh, the, the first time they hear about the atrocities, what is going on in the West Bank. So uh, all of a sudden, in one evening, 
which was yesterday, the 28th of January, what was the anniversary of that uh, incident, I was uh, called by the Israeli security. They came, they surrounded my house, and they submitted to me to be someone to go next morning, early morning, to the military headquarters in Ramallah. So I went there uh, before going to the, I thought that this is something, uh, it will take half an hour, an hour. I was supposed to be operating uh, in East Jerusalem hospital. And to my surprise, the interrogation by two officers went on and on in the afternoon. And they, they asked me, what are your affiliations with the PLO? I said, I nothing to do with the PLO. PLO is leading the, they are the leaders of the Palestinian people and they are in exile, but I have no, any direct or any connection with the PLO. Because actually in my open letter I mentioned, I told the, in that letter, if you want my advice, Mr. Rabin, and your government has to negotiate with the PLO. This is the legitimate leadership. You have to address it. You cannot evade this. When the Vietnam War, the U.S. government wanted to end the uh, Vietnam War, to whom they uh, negotiate with? With the Vietnamese themselves, they did not go to the Australian or uh, any European. They have to, you have to go directly. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel. This is the shortcut, the short way to peace. So it seems because I dare to say, and actually the title, they chose that title. I, uh, my my uh, title was an open letter to Ishaq Rabin from a Palestinian physician. They put... Only talks with PLO will bring Israel peace. Bold uh, <laughs> letters and so. So the, the inter interrogation went on and on. They said, okay, you don't want to cooperate. We'll issue you uh, arrest for two weeks or 18 days, actually. 18 days, they said. Then I said to them, but what about my patients? I have patients. Said, oh, one of them said, oh, you care about your patients? I told them, of course, I am. If you are a doctor, you will dream of your patients. What do you mean? Uh, of course, I, uh, there, one of them was a child, one of them was a pregnant woman with a stone in the ureter. So I said, okay, we'll see. They asked uh, a soldier to come and he led me to the prison, the solitary confinement, which you can hardly extend your legs and with a shithole and with a bucket to drink, to wash, to do all the, the, the same. And there is no light in it. There is a very small uh, window at the top. And he gave me the uniform, a brown, dirty uniform. And when I changed my clothes and put on the uniform, it was smelling urine. So I, I, I couldn't talk to them. So. So next morning when they called again to continue the interrogation, uh, I told them I want to to communicate about my patients. I'll, uh, just I want to give it, give the names of the patients, what sort of management they you know, and just please hand it over to one of my colleagues to take to take over from me. Again, they said we don't believe you. You have to, if you. One of them, he said, if you care about your dear patients, confess, write a confession, and you'll be 
you will uh, go to your dear uh, patients in a couple of hours. So immediately I decided to go into hunger strike. So uh, I went into hunger strikes for, for uh, four days. On the fourth day, they came, the two interrogators, and they were playing the good guy and the bad guy, by the way, which is a very interesting trick. Uh, he said, okay, give us uh, the names, and dare you give any uh, hints or any coding in, uh, so uh, just I'll give you the names where they are, whom of my colleagues would uh, can take care of. Then they called me, after uh, th I ended my hunger strike, so they continued the interrogation. They said, look, Dr. Aker, we, ho we know who you are. You are a respectful, respectable doctor in the community, and uh, we are trying to treat you as res respectfully as possible. So I immediately detected, of course, you are respecting me and taking care of me, and this is why you are giving me this uniform, smelling urine. You know I am a urologist, and you want me to feel at home. Uh, <laughs> this is what I exactly I told him. So uh, he said, how come, why did not tell us that this is not a clean uniform? He immediately called a soldier, get Dr. Aker a, a clean ironed uniform. And it was, you know. So in Twinton, and uh, uh, am I okay in, in time? Because there is something uh, it occurred now to my mind about the when I was exposed to one of my uh, experiences during the uh, solitary confi confinement. Went on for forty-five days. Uh, actually, they they brought me a during one of the interrogation sessions and they put me in a like a cupboard which and the handcuffed to the back and i stayed there for a few hours and i wanted i felt that i, I need to go to the toilet toilet so i tried to call and they every time i call they they knock the door shut up shake it in hebrew shake it shut up then I felt that because the, the this sort of cupboard, as if just uh, enough space to uh, your your knees touches the, the the door. I felt maybe the previous prisoners they peed in their uh, clothes, so this is it seemed that I have to do it. But luckily, it, in few minutes, the uh, interrogator he came, he led me out and. Uh, I went to the toilet and he started again uh, uh, interrogation and asking questions. It went into lengthy. And when the, uh, on one evening, they, they led me to a room where there's a, a table and a chair and they said, okay, you have until morning you have to write your confession i'll come in the morning and and actually i did not realize that i'll be starting a sleep deprivation uh, uh, treatment because all through the night whenever i want uh, of course i did not touch the pen nothing to confess about 
And it seemed that the sol some, a soldier, uh, he was looking at me from a, a small uh, window in the door. Whenever I just fall asleep, he will open the door, raise up your, or stand up. It went on for three nights, for three nights, sleep deprivation. And then in one morning, he came, one of the interrogators, and he found that the, the paper is plain and nothing is written. Uh, he threw the pen and then he went out and shut the door. You cannot imagine the feeling. I felt that I, uh, I uh, defeated him. It, it was a, a very elating sensation, uh, feeling that I defeated him. He could not break me down. And then he said, okay, we'll see. We'll take you to the court to, tomorrow. And I was led to, uh, when the, uh, I was led to the court, military court, uh, I st uh, I, uh, there were my wife and my friends, they have three uh, different lawyers, uh, one Palestinian and one Palestinian, but from Israel. And the third lawyer was a senior, a senior lawyer, uh, Israeli lawyer, and he became later on the chairperson of the Betselem uh, organization. It is a human rights organization. So when they started the, the, the hearings, I asked the judge if I may uh, say something. He said, yes, please. I said, I want to tell you that I have been under sleep deprivation for the last three nights. And I have to tell you that uh, on when I was arrested, I had few patients which I asked to take to be taken care of by other colleagues, and they did not allow me except after I spent three days on hunger strike. So he was amazed, the judge, and he respectfully listened, and they said, after the hearing, when I was led back to the. Uh, my solitary confinement cell, one of the interrogators, he came, he pulled me out, he said, we didn't expect you to lie, Dr. Acker. We thought that you are honest. And I said, what? I am honest. I, I, I don't lie. He said, you told the, 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 the judge that uh, we did not allow you to, to, to give the names of your patients. I said, this is not what I said. I said, it took me four days of hunger strike to submit the names of my, my patients. I did not say it. He said, no, but the minutes, I said, the minutes were wrong. They did not, they were not accurate. I assure you, when in the next session, I'll ask the judge to correct the minutes. When the second session after four or five days, Immediately, I asked the judge, may I say something? He said, so, so I, I told him, uh, in fairness to my interrogators, I started this way, in fairness to my interrogators, I would like, it seemed that the minutes about last session were not correct, not precise. I said, it took me four days of hunger strike to submit, uh, to be accepted to, to have the names. And it seemed that the minutes went on saying that, as if it is understood that, Till now, 
I am denied this uh, uh, privilege. So I said, okay, we'll correct it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you know, actually this experience, it gives you, I was feeling that uh, when you have a strong commitment and uh, the spirit and the uh, the commitment to your people, your patients, your the human rights you believe in, it gives you a lot of moral support. And I'll tell you one thing, additional thing. When I was first brought to the uh, court, because uh, uh, as, as I said, I was handcuffed and immediately before entering the room, they took it and with the, of course, the uniform. And immediately I found my wife and a lot of friends with the lawyers sitting in the court and my wife, instead of having on the chair facing the judge, she was sitting the other way around and she, from far away, she was so courageous. She said, Mamdouh, are you okay? Are you steadfast? I'm proud of you. Your children are proud of you. Everybody is proud of you. I said, I felt immediately coming out of uh, sleep deprivation for three nights. I was so elated to, to feel that this, because I thought that my family will be broken and in bad uh, feeling and so forth. So, <laughs> so uh, it was it was such an experience, and because of the uh, even if there is one thing else I'm uh, I'm keen to to to, re, uh, to remember it. Eventually, the. Uh, and thanks to the uh, uh, professor Avigdor Feldman, he is a great lawyer, a great human rights uh, lawyer. Uh, he managed in the last session to get me out on bail. It was 5 p.m. or so when the, uh, the decision was taken. He told me, look, Mamdouh, if you have any means, because they want to uh, release me on bail, about uh, twenty, twenty-one thousand dollars at that. It was five thirty. I told him, it seems that we have to wait till tomorrow. My friends and my relatives will go and pay, put uh, the money, and bring the receipt. He said, "Well, look, I know a bank which is open now. The bank in the airport. If you, somebody can go now to the airport and I'll wait." for him in the American colony in Jerusalem. If can you get the receipt this evening, I'll set you free this evening. And this is what happened. Mm. A friend of mine, they went to the airport, they paid the bail and uh, brought the receipt for him. And then the soldier came about eight o'clock in the evening to tell me, he called my name, get your uh, things, your clothes and, uh, you know, put it back, come with me. I said, what is this going? He said, you'll go home. I said, actually, uh, the other, my colleagues, the other prisoners, uh, because it was Ramadan, fasting month, we, we gathered to have uh, the break, the fasting in the uh, sunset together. And because they knew that the judge will be released and I told them tomorrow I'll be going home after paying the bail. And now 
suddenly it seemed that the, uh, the, the bail was paid. So I told the soldier, no, please tell Mr. Feldman, I'll wait till tomorrow morning. My colleagues here, the prisoners, they are making a sort of uh, a feast for me. Then he went, he came back to me. He said, he is very angry, Mr. Feldman. He said, you have to go out now. Don't do it till tomorrow. So I have to uh, obey. So I went out and when I met with him in the, at the front door, he told me, if you stayed overnight, there is a high risk that you'll be issued uh, administrative detention for six months. And this uh, administrative detention, one of the uh, measures the Israeli army uses, we don't need to be tried without uh, indictment, without just administrative detention, and can be renewed six months after six months and so forth. So he said, you have to be here. So I, I, I went out. And my involvement with the human rights, this gave me even more commitment to human rights and to, to help uh, other prisoners and, uh, uh, and so forth. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is an incredible story and what you've been through, torture, sleep deprivation. Um, and you continue to come and, and speak out here on this trip. And I'm wondering if you ever um, experience threats or feel, feel a threat that that might happen again or colleagues of yours that speak out on behalf of the Palestinian people. Um, and whether that's a factor, because it seems like you have yes. to have incredible courage to speak yes. out. Yes, actually, actually, uh, the threat is always there. And the, the irony, after uh, I was released, and again, more and more attention from the local media, Israeli media, the, because the Physicians for Human Rights invited me on one day to speak in Tel Aviv University about my experience in prison. Uh, and uh, and I at that time also I criticized the Israeli Medical Association. I told I said in that uh, lecture or presentation in the Tel Aviv University on the invitation of Israeli Palestinian physicians for human rights. It was Dr. Rohama Martin. She was the chairperson of the association at that time. When I expressed my experience and I criticized the medical Israeli Medical Association, I said they are complicit, and this is uh, they are betraying their commitment as uh, physicians not to be part of any torture or uh, in any way. So, and uh, after that uh, talk, I received a letter from the head of the uh, not a head from the head. Uh, of the ethics committee in the uh, Israeli Medical Association asking me to come and let us discuss what uh, your experience and so forth. But more interesting is that soon after that experience, there was an attempt by the uh, US administration at that time, uh, uh, President Bush, the father, and the Russians, I think Gorbachev was, they were working on a uh, starting peace negotiations and uh, ironically I was asked by the leadership 
in Tunisia, the PLO, to be a member of the negotiations. I said, uh, what can I do? I have no experience. I am not a lawyer. I said, no, because the Israelis insisted that only people who have no affiliation politically with the PLO. So they chose 18 members from the West Bank and Gaza. So when I went to uh, Madrid at first, the Madrid Peace Conference, I met with an Israeli, uh, uh, I was asked by CNN in one of the evening, uh, if I, uh, I don't mind to come to, for an interview with uh, uh, a member of the Israeli delegation uh, live. I said, I don't mind, but uh, who's that? They said, uh, he's Mr. Zalman Shuval, who was then the Israeli ambassador in Washington, D.C. I said, wow, this is the one I want to really talk to him and meet with him. I said, of course. Believe me, next morning, it was an early morning uh, live session on the CNN. Uh, I was supposed to be with the head of the, the our delegation to meet the Spanish Prime Minister in Madrid. So I immediately called the, the head of our delegation said, please uh, excuse me, I will not be uh, joining you in the meeting tomorrow. I have a very important interview on the CNN. Hmm. The reason I'm saying this is that uh, when I was released from the prison, uh, my friends and my lawyers showed me the letters of support uh, uh, that were sent to the Israeli government, to Israeli defense ministry, to the foreign ministry, and to the Israeli from uh, uh, NGOs in the America, like the Physicians for Human Rights, and from congressmen. And I think one of the letters were from uh, a senator even. I forgot his name now, maybe Sharp. I don't know. And they showed me responses from the Mr. Zalman Shuval to all these letters. It says, Dr. Acker was uh, uh, arrested on day so and so uh, because of his ter uh, uh, terrorist uh, affiliations with the terrorist organization. During his interrogation, he confessed of his affiliations. He will be brought to trial on in a few weeks' time. So I, when I showed the, the letters to uh, Professor Avigdor Feldman, I told him, this is, why not to uh, uh, have a, ca uh, a case, a libel case against uh, the Israeli government, why they are uh, labeling me as a terrorist while I'm released on bail and freed, and there was no uh, trial, and I was not even brought with the indictment uh, uh, center but my friends advised me not to because they said they will make your life a hell if you and uh, forget it so i thought at least let me face mr zalman shuval so when i went to the interview the interviewer the first thing he said would you shake hands together so i shook hand with him and i kept my hand uh, in his, and I told him, Mr. Zalman Shuval, do I look like a terrorist for you? Hmm. He, he was taken aback, and the, the interviewer, he noticed this. He said, why you are saying this, Dr. Hake? I said, because 
I was arrested and kept in solitary confinement for 45 days and I was tortured. And when uh, many uh, letters of support were sent to the Israeli embassy and to the Israeli foreign ministry and so forth, he wrote, uh, he answered back that I am, uh, I confessed as I am a terrorist and I have affiliation with terrorist organization. So, and then you should see his face cold sweat and he was taken aback and he became the, the on the defensive and they said you know what uh, so the interview went on my family and my friends who saw the interview they said you were like as if uh, catching him <laughs> red-handed and so so really it was and um, i remember Next morning, I was in the lift in the Washington D.C. Uh, in uh, in Madrid, and the uh, before we went to Washington, the Syrian ambassador, who is now the foreign minister, uh, he told me, "Doctor Hacker, your your interview yesterday was marvelous. You uh, you made our uh, day, and uh, our foreign minister he kept." Keeping uh, 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 rewinding the recording again and again, it's saying that this Palestinian doctor had our revenge from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, actually, after the the Oslo Peace uh, Conference and during the negotiations in uh, Washington D.C., I was in charge of the uh, human rights uh, f- uh, portfolio, all the list of prisoners and. Uh, and uh, when the Oslo Accords was eminent to be signed, and I felt, to be honest, that uh, this is not the right peace agreement we aspire for because it did not call for a release of prisoners uh, or uh, freezing the settlements activity and the inclusion of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, because we were assured in the letter of invitation by the US government and the Russian government that the occupied West Bank and Gaza will be treated as one geographical entity. So why do you are taking Jerusalem off? So this is it's not acceptable. Jerusalem should supposedly it is our capital. And why no freezing of the settlements? Because if, if you know, what is the logic? If the Israelis want to end the occupation in three to five years, why they are continuing settlement activities, because this does not mean a defeat or the whole purpose. If you want to withdraw, why you build settlements? You should not put one more stone then, and so forth. So and I said it publicly on the TV that I cannot go back to West Bank and defend the Oslo Accords to my people. It doesn't even describe the occupied territory as occupied and uh, and the uh, applicability of Geneva Conventions on Occupied Territory. So, and I left the uh, the negotiations two days before they signed the the uh, agreement. But when after that the Palestinian uh, Authority was established as a government, self-government, uh, I was approached to be a minister for human rights. I said, no way. I am against Oslo Accord. In principle, because, and I wrote actually uh, an op uh, piece in the Washington Post. I said that I wish if uh, uh, this is a peace agreement, it's not, it is just uh, a truce 
uh, and the, the 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 conflict will continue as long as the main elements for a last uh, or a lasting peace are not there. So this will be a truce and uh, more and more uprisings and the conflict with, will continue. So I refuse to take that post. But I, what I did with uh, 15, 16 of my uh, colleagues, most of them from the academy, academia and uh, uh, different uh, universities and some of them from abroad, including the late Edward Said. I'm sure you're familiar with the name. He was... Uh, one of the founding members, we established the Independent Commission for Human Rights because we felt when we first met that uh, the Palestinian self-government, our people from abroad, they are coming back. Uh, as a liberation movement, they have no experience in how to run a country, how to establish uh, an administration, modern administration. And I was one of those who believed that we have an opportunity a unique opportunity to start an administration from zero, from bottom up. So it will be the most modern administration uh, in uh, that time. So let us uh, establish the Commission for Human Rights to be, to be like a watchdog to monitor the behavior of our self-government uh, in uh, respecting uh, human rights, respecting freedom, uh, uh, combating uh, uh, corruption because there were a lot of uh, things that we used to know about uh, some uh, some activities which can really uh, uh, described as corruption and we established the independent commission for human rights and uh, maybe you are familiar with the name of dr hanan ashrawi she was the spokesperson of the delegation uh, and she took the uh, the statement of the commission establishing the commission it has to be signed by uh, chairman arafat as a decree according to un uh, uh, requirements for any national human rights uh, commission and he signed it immediately and we were laughing when we said said he, he, he thought that it will be just a decor. He, he does not realize that he created a monster for him. <laughs> and this is what happened, actually. From day one, we started criticizing this and that. And when we used to, the first Palestinian government, when we used to send them letters objecting on certain things, I remember we were told that some of the ministers, you say, who are these people to, to, to question us? Who are these people? And they, and when we started also writing, uh, uh, because we received complaints about misbehavior from our security apparatuses, they never responded. They ignored us. Over the, but later on, none of the agencies in the Palestinian ministry, whether civilian or security, would dare not to respond to uh, when we submit the complaints from our citizens. And this is, anyway, the reason I mentioned this, because I feel that uh, in our context, because of the credibility of the group who started it, and because we don't have any political agenda, and because we felt that we have to do it to defend, how can we defend 
our people against the Israeli occupation if our human rights and our freedoms are violated by our own government. It will be a double standard. I won't accept any encroachment of uh, uh, our uh, human rights. Uh, and I, uh, I won't uh, uh, be uh, daring to, to criticize the behavior of Israeli army if I don't at the same time uh, don't accept the behavior of our government. And I think this gave us credibility all around the world. And uh, our commission, although it was a unique example of a commission for human rights in an occupied area, we were granted status A in the UN and we became the leading commission for human rights in the, the whole region. We, uh, we trained a few of the commissions when they started in Tunisia and in Qatar and the Emirates and Jordan. So, uh, and after Hanan Ashrawi, she was the first commissioner general, then uh, Dr. Uh, Haider Abdel Shafi, he was the, he was chairing the delegation for the peace negotiations. He was the commissioner general for uh, four years again. Then I became the commissioner general for two terms, for eight years. And uh, now I'm just uh, an honorary commissioner. And uh, something worth mentioning, when my second term after the eight years was approaching to end, my co-commissioners, they approached me to say, why not to extend it for one more year? I said, if we extend it for one more day, we will lose our credibility because it is the tradition of our leaders in the whole region that they keep their office one term after the other. Look <laughs> what is happening in Sudan now. 30 years in office and he's surprised why people asking him to, 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 to leave office and so forth. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. It seems... Um you have a major role in advocating for human rights. How much of that is heightened by your profession of being a physician? As I said, actually, it doesn't contradict at all to me as a doctor. And if you are a good doctor, you have to be a human and you have to believe in human rights and the right to health in particular, it is it relates to many other human rights because to fulfill uh, the right to health and in general all human rights are interrelated and interdependent and indivisible cannot divide so the right to health has to uh, include right to education right to child right to uh, uh, movement right to development so Uh, And actually, because of the commitment, uh, uh, I managed to to balance between my, because I, till now, because I love medicine and I love urology as a subspecialty, I'm still practicing also, not in full gear, uh, being now, I'm 75 uh, old, uh, but I find that every, I give it a, a second priority is the, the commitment to human rights and all the uh, related issues. And this actually in, enhances the two roles. 
you enhance his uh, because uh, when people coming to my office as a urologist, you say we we heard your statement uh, yesterday, we heard your interview yesterday, we uh, we uh, hail you for what you are speaking out because. For example, two years ago, last year, last year, there was a major strike for teachers in uh, Palestine. They were demanding uh, to have certain uh, uh, benefits and uh, advantages they were denied of. And the, the, stri the strike went on for a week and second week. And the security forces were, they were really uh, trying to be uh, to disrupt the, the their demonstrations and their strike, and I felt that the government is hurting the whole issue of education, and the the teacher is has to have to enjoy the full respect. Uh, why you are treating him this way? That they are disrupting their uh, uh, in a very. Uh, uh, I won't say uh, any appropriate method to disrupt any demonstration. So I put an open letter to President uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of Palestine, complaining to him that what is going on is, is un unacceptable. You have to do something. This government, it seems that it lost, it lost it, its mind. And the minister of education, he is a young chap, and well-educated, well-enlightened. How he accepts that teachers be treated, and they are right. They are defending their right. Why all this? So I appeal to him to interfere as soon as possible, because we, we are going to lose a generation with the strike. In the, in the same day in the evening, I received a call from the head of the intelligence service in Palestine telling me, Dr. Aker, what is this article you put today in the newspaper? And it was published in the first page. I said, what do you mean? I said, this is an incitement. I said, <laughs> I, Dr. Mamdouh Aker, incite? How come? <laughs> and you are disturbing <laughs> the peace, uh, the civilian peace, Silm al-Ahli. He said, and you are not mentioning Hamas. We notice. I said, what do you mean? Why to mention Hamas? What Hamas has to do? This is a teacher strike. I'm trying to support them. Do you mean that I am a Hamas member? Then he said, and you don't uh, give any mention to our neighbors. I said, uh, our uh, uh, cousins, sorry, our cousins. You know what he meant. Yeah. So... I said, what do you mean by cousin? I said, do you know who are our cousin? I said, no, I have many cousins. Who, 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 who cousins? He said, our neighbors. He doesn't want to say. I said, do you mean that I'm writing all this, defending the, uh, the teacher strike on the behest of Israelis? What do you mean? How come? He said, well, look, Dr. Hakir, we have a feeling that you want to imitate Wael Ghunim. When the uprising in Egypt, there was, with the social media, there was one figure called Wael Ghunim. He was, that he was, he played a major role in the uprising in Egypt, in the Tahrir, Midan Tahrir. I told him, well, look, 
my article this morning is going to make an uprising in, in Palestine. What do you mean? He said, and we also, it seems that you are labeling this government as they have no brain. I said, excuse me, uh, General. I think those who read to you the article, they don't know Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> what I said is that this strike of, by the teachers is like a fireball unrolling and it's going to burn our national assets in education, in health. Our national, had, uh, uh, it was the accusa accusation that, uh, uh, that what you said is that uh, the government is, uh, is not a nationalist government. Uh, the, the, this first accusation, this is why I said, I told him they, 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 they don't understand Arabic because what I said, we are losing our national, national assets. So it doesn't mean that I'm accusing the government they have no brain or no, no national uh, affiliation. And he said, uh, and at the same time, uh, you seem to uh, label the uh, government that they have no brain. I said, again, they don't know Arabic. Because what I said, how come in a government with a prime minister, he is a well-known senior academic, and the, the uh, minister of education, he is a young chap, well uh, educated in UK and enlightened. How come, what happened to their brain to behave this way? So when I say to somebody, what happened to your mind, to your brain, I'm uh, uh, acknowledging that he has uh, the greatest brain. So what happened to you? <laughs> and so forth, one, one accusation after the other, but it, it shows. And I immediately, actually, my friends, uh, and that evening they said, you have to let the president know, otherwise you will be harmed. So next morning uh, I asked uh, a friend of mine, he is the chairperson of the Birzeit University, Dr. Hanna Nasser, to if he minds to come with me to, because he heads the uh, uh, Central Election Committee. He's a very respectable man. So we went and... Uh, the things in at the hands of the president. Dr. Acker, I'm really struck by your enduring um, integrity and determination in the face of all of the trials, um, both yourself and the Palestinian people. Um, I'm wondering what gives you hope? What gives you that determination and strength to keep keep standing up? I Thank you. I, I think we have no no alternative but to have hope. And I remember always, we have a great poet, Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish. He died 10 years ago. There is one of his pieces, it says, we have to nurture hope. We have to nurture hope. Amal. We cannot give up, we cannot give up. And if you come to my office, I have a caricature, very, very telling. During the first Antifada, I, I noticed that uh, a goose trying to uh, swallow a, a frog. And it is uh, already inside the, the throat of the goose, but with the two arms of the frog uh, holding the neck 
of the goose, preventing it from swallowing it. So even when you are swallowed, you have not to give up, <laughs> you have not to give up. And actually, because uh, honestly, not because I'm Palestinian, in all objectivity, I would say that the most and the harshest injustices we are exposed to is beyond imagination. It's beyond imagination because, and unfortunately, the the realities about what is happening in Palestine by the Israeli army, and not only the army. I mentioned the settlements. We have over 200 settlements and over 800,000 settlers in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And these settlers are armed. And these settlers are very vicious when they attack our cars, they attack the farmers, they uproot the trees. So uh, we, we, the, the, the extent of injust, injustice to Palestinians and the Palestine cause makes you, you have to do everything, every effort possible so that we at least to expose what is happening on one side and to see into it, to bring an end to this suffering as soon as possible. And I believe, I believe that there is a way out because I believe that uh, although what is happening is not in Israel, is not just a military occupation. It is not a military occupation. I came to realize after you know, witnessing what is happening and studying and getting more and more readings about other models because none in the modern history no military occupation lasted 52 years and none of the military occupations had a program a project of settlements so this is a settler colonialism and the more i read about settler colonialism the more i realize that this is exactly what is happening and more even it is beyond settler colonialism because it is now there is it is unraveling into a new model of apartheid, apartheid. And when even I studied about, the, and I visited South Africa and met with the ANC people and, uh, and I met with Mandela in Washington, DC, because and I told him that uh, I was a co-founder of Mandela Institute named after him as a symbol of prisoners. Uh, and uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu visited us more than one time and he said, you should stop calling it ap apartheid. This is more sophisticated than apartheid because in South Africa, it was just the separation between the black African blacks and the uh, uh, European whites. And they don't want to expel them. They don't want to make their life impossible and to feel suffocated and they have to leave. Uh, just they want their separation as a, a, a racist uh, attitude and they want they are after cheap labor of the black population of South Africa but in our case the Israelis plan and project is to uh, get us more and more squeezed squeezed into enclaves and bantu stands like the South African and to make our life as difficult as possible so that we have no option but to leave. Um, I'm wondering what people who are listening to this and concerned and would like to support the Palestinian people in their quest for peace and um, the right to 
move and live, um, what we can do to help. I know there's um, a boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, and that there was some big news that the uh, Ireland Parliament uh, passed a law banning buying goods from the Israeli settlements. And how you view, um, I, I know that's one way that I could suggest that might be um, a way for people here to support the cause. But it's it's hard for us being so separated from it to know how to how to support and how to help. Yeah. So I'd be interested in. Hearing on that. There are many ways. The simplest way is to spread the word and to expose what is happening if you believe that this is the reality. And I will encourage every human being to come and visit and see and witness it firsthand. And believe me, even the reality on the ground, it is harsher, much harsher than I described because the details the details is beyond imagination. And you mentioned the BDS. Actually, the BDS was the one of the best tools in South Africa that expedited the dismantling of the apartheid regime. And it is a peaceful thing. And it is it is an individual uh, aspect. The, the freedom of uh, expression, of, of opinion, of... Uh, so, you know, how come the, to the, to to delegitimate uh, anybody who uh, takes action? And actually, it is not, you know, at least not boycotting Israel itself, boycotting the settlements, because according to international law, according to American uh, uh, voting in the United Nations Security Council, this is illegal settlement. So at least being illegal settlement, if you boycott the products of these illegal settlements, which are built on stolen, confiscated land. So what is what is wrong with it? What is wrong with it? It shows that and this is very painful to, to, to me and to my people, because what else can we do? What else? Uh, now the the whole world, because we are moving into a different dimension in at uh, many liberation movements, national liberation movements in in Vietnam in uh, in South Africa at one stage the armed struggle. Now uh, it it's not accepted to resort to them, but the other means peaceful means it has to be accepted. It has to be. It is. You have you know, the number of resolutions condemning Israel behavior, innumerable, countless resolutions. But Israel is not paying any attention and it's getting the support from, uh, unfortunately, the US administration, many Western countries. And unless re we resort to sanctions against Israel, to make them see into it, to respect human rights, to respect uh, Palestinian right to self-determination and independence and statehood. Otherwise, we are in a jungle. We are in a jungle. It cannot be. Thanks. Sort of relatedly going off that point, I want to ask about the prospects for peace, um, whether it be two state or one state. And also relatedly, 
talk ask about the sort of the psychological torture that the Palestinians have to endure, especially the young population. We know that about forty percent of the Palestinians are under the age of fifteen, so there's there's a lot of young people yes. living under the occupation. And you've mentioned before that you have hope for a binational state, meaning one state but two nationalities. So how how would you imagine that would work if if we were ever to get to a scenario of a binational state? But we have a Palestinian population growing up with the psychological torture. How do you imagine we get over that hump of of yes. two people reconciling in that in that manner? I think the model of South Africa is very helpful, and gives, this is one of the reasons it really gives me hope. Because at one stage, it was unthinkable that the apartheid regime would be dismantled, and it happened. And the reconciliation, and there was the commission reconciliation uh, commission headed by uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Mm -hmm. So if there is enough pressure on the Israeli government to see into it and respect uh, its obligations as occupier and to respect the human rights, to respect Geneva Conventions, and to, to, to respect the resolutions that this is the best solution that the, the international community agreed to it to divide the land, historic Palestine, into Israel and Palestine. There are many resolutions. And we accepted this. Officially, we accepted it, although it is not fair because it's giving us 22% of Palestine. Although the partitioning, the resolution by uh, UN uh, General Assembly in 1947, it was found that the conflict can be resolved by partitioning because to keep Palestine as one entity, it, apparently it was not possible. So partitioning, and during uh, that resolution, uh, 181, we were given 46% or 44, sorry, 44% of the land in 1947. And Israel was given 56. But during the war, Israel even took 72%, 78% and left 22% for us. And nevertheless, our leadership and our people and the international community now agrees that the two-state solution as it is, 22% to Palestinian state and keep the 78% to Israel. They don't want. So what they want, the two-state solution is the practical and ideal and the most pragmatic solution. And we are ready to agree on it in spite of the pain because to see that your homeland within uh, less than a century is shrinking and shrinking, uh, you are getting only 22%. And what else do they want? And they don't want one state. They don't want one state in the sense that one man, one vote and equal rights. So I think uh, the, uh, the ultimate ideal solution is the binational state, which will keep to the Israelis their uh, cultural identity and self-government, and at the same time for the Palestinian cultural uh, self-government. And within the framework of one state, and there are very successful models of binational states like in Canada, in Belgium, in Switzerland, and many other countries. So we get uh, really puzzled uh, 
what solution? They don't want state, one man, one vote, and equal rights. They don't want a two-state solution. They are making their best to make it impossible. And I believe on the ground it is impossible. But we are ready to accept if they are ready to end the occupation and dismantle the settlements and leave us to live in, in our independent state of Palestine. So what they want? So till now, they are not accepting the two-state solution. They don't want one-state solution. So it is so far the only solution they have in mind. This government, I'm not saying that all the Israelis, this government, unfortunately, it is controlling uh, the, the Israeli public. They want us out and only live in enclaves, in Bantu stands, and I even I call it in cages. We are in as if we are in cages. One day I said it to one of the uh, officers at the checkpoint because you want to travel with your car, drive from one city to the other. You'll find that road is closed. They will tell you you have to go that way, that way, that way. I told him, what was you are, you are as if we are you are treating us as if we are in a zoo animals in a zoo when you want in a zoo you notice that when they want to feed the animal they close one door they open the other and so forth so as if so imagine the humiliation and the psychological impact when you you feel that you are treated like an animal in a zoo and coming to the psychological impact it's tremendous tremendous and not only the the daily suffering and the daily humiliation at the checkpoints and the I can get, tell you stories, the humiliation. I personally what exposed, let alone the imprisonment. Uh, one day I was going to my hospital with a permit, uh, and I showed the permit to the uh, uh, woman uh, soldier. She said, hey, this is a fake uh, permit. I said, what do you mean? Every day I come, How? this is the same permit. I said, don't argue with me stand aside and she asked me to go into a cubicle like the telephone boxes you remember in the old days so i went there 10 15 minutes i knocked uh, at the window said for how long shall i wait I said shut up then i said okay because i have surgery in the hospital i picked my mobile i wanted to call the operating room that i'll be delayed stop using the don't uh, use your mobile stop it I want to call my hospital. What is wrong with this? Then I was uh, getting restless. I was standing up. Sit down. Uh, uh, the, the, the accent of the shouting, it's very humiliating, very humiliating. You are talking to a senior, a senior citizen even. Uh, she, uh, it is very clear. She knows my birth date on the permit and so forth. So the humiliation and the trauma Beside the historical trauma, I was referring yesterday in my presentation to historical uh, the trauma of people who are expelled. 750,000 people expelled in 1948 as refugees. There, uh, to make their return impossible, they destroyed more than 400 villages. Just destroyed them one after the other. So this trauma is... Generation after generation, it is kept in mind. So, according to WHO, 
there is at least 2.5 to 5% of the population, our population, they need mental support. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Mamdou Akar, I want to thank you for uh, coming to the Carver College of Medicine. I want to thank you for sharing your um, your experiences um, in your activism with us today um and you're and you're as a both as a doctor and as a palestinian it's been very um enlightening i think thank you very much i really appreciate uh, this opportunity to be in iowa university it's a great uh, university it's a great university this morning Iowa, we were touring into the Children Hospital. It is a piece of art. Yes, something. It? <laughs> something. It really is. Something. Yeah. Yes. Um, really. And the, actually, the, the this program, the Global Health Program, it shows the commitment uh, to to that you care here in Iowa University. You care about what's happening to other people. And when I, uh, it was sent to me that you interviewed Paul Farmer. Yeah. He's one of my. Uh, uh, how should I call it? Because I read two or three of his books and always refer to his work and his amazing, his commitment to uh, right um, of the poor. And one of his statements, I remember in your interview with him, it is not only, you should not say that the poor should have equal treatment to the to other people. It should be more than, because they need more. Mm. This is equity. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Uh, Shakura, Osama, Jordan, Joel, thank you so much for coming to uh, join us as well. It was nice having you here. And more thanks to you listeners for making us a part of your week. If you like what you heard today, we hope we've earned your subscription. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. And you can benefit from our habit of answering listener questions. So send your questions or whatever you like to shortcoats at gmail.com. Reach out on social media. Or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. And don't forget to visit theshortcoat.com slash store to pick up our new t-shirts, the purchase of which benefits the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And if we made you smile or gave you something to think about today right now, while your podcast app is open, give us some stars and a review. It's an easy way way to be a friend of the short coat and helps us know we're doing the right thing the show is made possible by a generous donation by carver college of medicine student government and ongoing support from the writing and humanities program our executive producer is jason lewis our opening music is by dr vox and our closing music is by catmosphere talk to you in one week 